Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. While you were turning there and before we begin today, I want to share a statistic with you that I discovered last month. And it's a shocking statistic. And I didn't know about it. And everyone that I shared it with has said they didn't know about this either. So I want to share this statistic with you today because I want you to be aware of the spiritual needs of the Central Coast and the spiritual needs of our city. So I want you to leave here every week saying, what a great Savior, and not necessarily, what a great sermon, what a great service, what a great song. I want us to leave here every week and say, what a great Savior, what a great Savior Jesus is. And then I want us to take that good news and share it with our family and with our coworkers and our friends and our neighbors and the baristas at the coffee shop that we visit and the waiters at the restaurants we go to and the mechanics and the doctors and all the people that we encounter throughout the week. I want us to be so overwhelmed with Jesus that we share him with anyone that God brings across our path in our own little world of influence. So here's the statistic that I want to share with you so that you will share Jesus' love with others here on the Central Coast. According to the Barna Group, which is the uh, predominant uh, research group for the church, I believe, the Central Coast is ranked number two in the U.S. on the never-churched list. A list of cities or areas where there are the highest number of people who have never, ever been to church once. In all the cities and the regions in the U.S., the Central Coast, where we live, is number two on the never-been-to-church list. And so here's the list. West Palm Beach, Florida and Pierce, Florida, 17% of the people that live there have never been to church. And then coming in at number two... With 16% of the population is the Central Coast. We are number two on the list of cities and regions from Santa Barbara up to Slow and San Luis Obispo that have the highest number of people who have never ever been to church one single time. In all of America, we are number two on the list of a city and an area that is full of people who have never been to church once in their life. This should not be. There are more never-churched people here on the Central Coast than there are in New York. 16% of the people that live here on the Central Coast have never been to church once. And that means that God has sovereignly placed you in your neighborhood and in your workplace so that you can share Jesus with these people who have never been to church. The baristas at the Starbucks that you visit have been placed there so that you can tell them about Jesus. Now, they think they're there for the paycheck and the free coffee, but they're there so you can build relationships with them and become their friends and get to know them and care about them as a person and then tell them how much Jesus loves them. Your cashier at the grocery store that you visit each week, that you see each week, is there so that you can tell them about Jesus. And even though 16% of the Central Coast have never been to church, you know what? Invite them anyway. You never know what might happen. They might actually agree to come to church with you. And Easter is a few weeks away, so it's a great opportunity to invite them 
to church. So as you leave today, say this. What a great Savior you are, Jesus. Now open some doors for me to tell people about you. And the only way that that will ever happen is if the gospel gets down into your pores. And the Holy Spirit empowers you. So let's pray one more time before we look at God's word. Father, you are so merciful and so giving and gracious. You weren't stingy with your love that you shared in eternity past with your son in and through the Holy Spirit. But you were outgoing with it, sharing it with others. And you did that by sending your son Jesus to live and die for us. How merciful you are, God, in not giving us what we deserve. How loving and kind and gracious. I don't know anyone like you, Father. I've never met anyone like you. You're holy. You're different. You're set apart from everyone that I know. Father, would you make us a church that takes this love that we celebrate every single week. Would you open doors for us to share it with other people so that they can share and enjoy you as well. Help us as we look at your word to see Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, if you've been here at Grace for a while, then you know that I love the Puritans. I quote them often. You've heard me talk about my love for them. Who were the Puritans? Maybe you don't know. The Puritans were a group of pastors and theologians and seminary professors that lived roughly between 1550 and 1700, and they were primarily English and Scottish and Dutch. But the name, the nickname that was given to them, the Puritans, was not born out of respect for them. It was actually a derogatory term. There was some satire behind it when it was used. It was a smear word that was used by their opponents, but it stuck. And so now we speak of the Puritans, and it conjures up these images of these uh, strong theological men of old who, who loved God, and they loved his word, and they loved his church. And so that's how we think of the Puritans now Or maybe, perhaps that's not your image of the Puritans, maybe you think they were a group of stiff, rigid men who drank prune juice and ate liver. I don't know what your image of them is. But today I want to tell you about two of my favorite Puritans, and they were not stiffs. Richard Sibbs and Thomas Goodwin, two of my favorite Puritans who have helped me tremendously in a dark season of my life, Richard Sibbs' book, The Bruised Reed, was a great comfort to me. So if you're going through a dark period of your life, maybe even a season of depression, I highly recommend The Bruised Reed to you. You can probably find it online. In it, Richard Sibbs talks about the gracious nature of Jesus to his people as they are suffering. He highlights how gentle and comforting Jesus is with the wounded and the hurt. In fact, the bruised reed has influenced such notable preachers and theologians such as John Owen, J.C. Ryle, and Charles Spurgeon, and more recently, John Stott and Martin Lloyd-Jones and J.I. Packer and Tim Keller. So Richard Sibbs has been a great help to me and to countless others. But like the Puritans, Richard Sibbs was also given a few nicknames. He was called the Sweet Dropper. 
He was called the honey-mouthed preacher. He was called the heavenly Dr. Sibs. Richard Sibbs was given these nicknames because his sermons were consistently encouraging. And in his preaching, he sought to highlight the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus. And this is what Richard Sibbs said about gospel-centered preachers. He said, they woo for Christ and they open the riches, beauty, honor, and all that is lovely in him. It was even said that heathen men would stay away from church. They wouldn't go to church for fear of hearing Richard Sibbs preaching because they thought if we hear him preaching, we'll get saved. We'll be converted if we hear the honey-mouthed preacher preach. If we hear the sweet dropper talking, then we'll be converted. And I don't want to be converted. That's how gracious Merciful he was in his preaching in highlighting how gracious and merciful Jesus is to sinners like us. Pagans actually avoided church because if they knew, they knew if they heard him speaking about Jesus, then they'd get saved. And so he was called the sweet dropper. He was called the honey-mouthed preacher. He was called the heavenly Dr. Sibs. And Richard Sibbs actually had a tremendous impact on another Puritan, Thomas Goodwin. In his early days of pastoring and preaching, Thomas Goodwin was described as a conscience batterer. He preached in such a way that he left no hope for the believer. He preached and he majored on the law. And he never brought in the freedom and the grace of Jesus. And he almost burned out in ministry because of this. He almost lost his mind. He almost had a nervous breakdown because he was battering people with his sermons, which were heavy on the law. Light on the gospel, heavy on to-do lists, things that you have to do. And so Goodwin had been preaching for about seven years, seven years worth of conscience-battering sermons and beating people down with the law, beating them down with all these to-do lists. But then Richard Sibbs came to the rescue and he helped Goodwin to see how Jesus is to be the focus of the sermon and how that sets people free. Richard Sibbs showed Goodwin how hearts don't need to be beat up and battered and bruised, but rather hearts need to be melted, melted in the free grace of God, melted by the love of God in Christ. And so here's what Sibbs told Goodwin. Young man, if you ever would do good, you must preach the gospel and the free grace of God in Christ Jesus. And so Goodwin began to be transformed by the grace and love of Jesus. And he took Sib's advice and he ended up writing some very pastoral books and sermons. And one of his works has been a source of healing and comfort me over the past year as I've been making my way through it. Here's the original title to the book by Goodwin that I've been reading this past year. A treatise demonstrating the gracious disposition and tender affection of Christ in his humane nature, now in glory, unto his members under all sorts of infirmities, either of sin or misery. What a book title, huh? You can probably see the Puritan influence on my sermon titles, yes? 
Well, when that book is published today, it's usually shortened to The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth, or even shortened even more to just The Heart of Christ. And I think you can find it online for free as well. Listen to Thomas Goodwin's preface as he explains what his book, The Heart of Christ, is all about. He says this, The Heart of Christ, as now he is in heaven, sitting at God's right hand and interceding for us, how it is affected and graciously disposed towards sinners on earth that do come to him. How willing to receive them. How ready to entertain them. How tender to pity them in all their infirmities, both sins and miseries. The scope and use whereof of his book will be this. To hearten and encourage believers to come more boldly unto the throne of grace. Unto such a savior and high priest when they shall know how sweetly and tenderly his heart, though he is now in his glory, how it's inclined towards them, and so to remove that great stone of stumbling which we meet with. And what he talks about in his book is that the two things that move and stir Jesus' heart toward us is number one, our sorrows, the afflictions, the trials, the the hardships that we go through in, in life. They move Jesus' heart toward us. And secondly, and maybe even more shocking, it's our sins. The sins that beset us move his heart toward his people. Goodwin, in his book, wanted his readers to place their hands on Jesus' chest, if you will, and to feel his heartbeat, to feel the deep, deep love that Jesus has for his church. And that's exactly what our passage is about today. It's about how graciously disposed Jesus is to sinners like us, even though he reigns in white-hot glory right now in heaven. It's about how Jesus is ready to entertain us, meaning he's ready to welcome us into his presence. This passage is all about how Jesus pities us. It's about how sweetly and tenderly his heart is toward us. And so our big idea today is this. Your sins move Jesus to pity more than to anger. Your sins The things that you did last week, the things that you did last night that you are totally embarrassed about and ashamed of, wish you could reverse the tape, rewind it and go back, those sins move Jesus to pity more than to anger. If you are a Christian, your sins, which you commit all day, every day, all the time, all too much, they move Jesus to pity more than to anger. Your mess, your junk, your struggles move Jesus to mercy more than to anger. And that's because he is a merciful and faithful high priest, which is what the preacher of Hebrews will tell us. So let's look at God's word in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. As I mentioned last week, this paragraph, verses 14 and 18, is 
uh, follows this pattern here where the preacher of Hebrews will tell us that Jesus had to become a human being and then he'll give several reasons why and then he'll end by saying Jesus helps us. So we, last week we looked at that first little section. Today we'll look at the second of these. And the pattern is this. He'll tell us in verse 17 that Jesus shared in our humanity. Then he will tell us the reasons why so that Jesus would be a faithful and merciful high priest so that he would make propitiation for our sins. And then he'll end in verse 18 by saying Jesus helps us. So notice the therefore in verse 17. In light of what he said in verses 14 through 16, that pattern that he followed, the preacher of Hebrews will tell us again that Jesus, in order to be our high priest, had to be made like us. And it worked like this for priests in the Old Testament. The high priest in the Old Testament had to be from the family line of Aaron. You couldn't just wake up one day and say, I want to be a priest. You know what I'm going to do with my life? I think I want to be a priest. You couldn't just wake up and decide that. You had to be related to Aaron. He had to be a part of the priestly line. See, back then, everybody just didn't get a trophy because you played the game. That's what we do today, right? Whether you win or lose, you get a trophy and you get a ribbon. It didn't work like that in the Old Testament. Not everyone could be a priest. Only people from the chosen family line could be priests. In the same way, the preacher of Hebrews is saying, Jesus couldn't just show up as Savior in the Spirit like a phantom or a mist He couldn't just show up as our great high priest in some spiritual form, but not be human. He had to be made like us. He had to be made like his brothers, he tells us. He had to take on flesh and blood. And he had to be made like us in every respect, he says in verse 17. So Jesus was just like us, except for sin. That means that Jesus struggled with all of the limitations of humanity, just like us. Jesus got tired. Jesus got sick. Jesus got the flu and he threw up. Jesus had a fever. Jesus got migraines. And if he didn't get a good night's sleep because of the time change, then he needed Starbucks the next morning too. And if he skipped lunch, then by dinner time, he was craving and he needed some Santa Maria style tri-tip. He was made just like us in every respect except for sin. And because Jesus was just like us, that makes him a merciful and faithful high priest because he knows what it is like to suffer. He knows what it is like to be tempted, and that makes him a great, great high priest. Now, the preacher of Hebrews will make a big deal out of Jesus being our high priest in his letter. The theme of Jesus being our high priest is a big part of the book of Hebrews. And there will be two things that the author stresses about Jesus being our high priest. Number one, he came and took on human flesh and became our high priest in order to make propitiation for our sins. Jesus came to turn aside God's wrath at our sin. That's what propitiation means. Secondly, he will highlight how Jesus came and took on human flesh and became our high priest in order to be merciful to us. Jesus came not just to be a faithful high priest, making atonement for our sins, obeying God's law on our behalf, but Jesus also came to be merciful to us, to be merciful to sinners and rebels like us. And so as our high priest, Jesus turns aside God's wrath and anger at our sin, at our rebellion. 
Just like the priests, the high priest in the Old Testament, who only entered the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for the sins of the nation of Israel, so too Jesus makes atonement once on the cross for our sins. But he does it for all time, has lasting effects. He turns away God's wrath at our sin once and for all. That's propitiation. At the cross, Jesus redirects God's righteous anger at our sin and it lands squarely on him. And that can be true for you and of you today. If you repent and you trust in Jesus, if you say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner, if you trust in Jesus in his perfect life, his perfect death, then God's anger at your rebellion, God's anger at your sin, God's anger at your disobeying his law, God's anger at your loving 10,000 things more than him, All of that is redirected to Jesus at the cross. And if that's true of you, then God's not mad at you. God's not angry with you anymore, Christian. And if you're not a Christian, then yes, God's righteous anger is directed at you because of your rebellion, and it will find you one day like a heat-seeking missile. But you can escape that by running to Jesus. And so that's what that big theological word there in verse 17 means, propitiation. It means turning aside God's anger and wrath, redirecting it to Jesus. So when you're down in the dumps, you're feeling defeated because you sin all the time, all too often, all too much, and you feel like God must be sick of you by now, that he must be angry at you because of your lack of obedience, Jesus comes to you and he tells you that God is not mad at you anymore. In fact, because of Jesus, God is madly in love with you now. If you have been united to him by faith, Jesus tells you, he does tell you in his word that he turned away God's anger at your sin. That's propitiation. Jesus turned God's anger. Jesus turned God's anger at your sin away from you where it rightly belongs to himself where it does not belong. And that's why the word gospel means good news. God's not mad at us anymore. Listen, Christian, hear me loud and clear this morning. God is not mad at you. I don't care what you did last week, last month, last year, 10 years ago. Christian, united to Christ by faith, God is not mad at you. God has not had it with you. God is not sick and tired because you just can't seem to get your act together. God is not disgusted with you. God doesn't throw his hands up in disbelief and say, I can't believe they did that again. Can't they get their act together? Jeez Louise, come on, people. God's not that way. Basically, and this is going to sting a little, Grace. Basically, God doesn't act the way that we act when people in our life sin. God does not respond to our sins the way that we respond to people when people sin against us. When people in our life sin, we throw our hands up 
We can't believe that they can't get their act together. We say things like, I can't believe you did that. What were you thinking? Why did you do that? I can't believe so-and-so did that. Can you believe they did that? That's how we respond when people sin. But not Jesus. He's merciful. He's merciful to us. He's so merciful. He's gentle. He's caring. Why? Because he suffered when he was tempted. Look at verse 18 again. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus knows what it is like to suffer. Jesus knows what it is like to be tempted to sin. So when you struggle and when you fail, Jesus comes alongside you and he says, the struggle is real. I know. I've been there. I resisted temptation for 33 years and I never gave in to the devil's lies. I can help you. The struggle was real for Jesus. The temptations were real. And even when the struggle is real for you, when the temptations are real for you, Jesus is a faithful and merciful high priest. He will help. And he doesn't shame us because of our sins or shame us because of our struggle with sin or shame us because our struggle with sin is not what we want it to be. He doesn't shame us because of a lack of obedience. Let me say that again. Number one, Jesus doesn't shame us because of our sins. Number two, Jesus doesn't shame us because of our struggle with sin. And number three, Jesus doesn't shame us because our struggle with sin is not what we want it to be. Meaning, he doesn't shame us because of a lack of obedience. He doesn't shame us because there is a lack of obedience in our life or because we fail. What the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit shows us our sin to make us run to Jesus, not to ruin our day. The Holy Spirit reveals our sin through God's law to make us run to Jesus, our Savior, our merciful, faithful hybrid, not to ruin our day, not to ruin our week, not to ruin our vacation. The Spirit doesn't show up and show you your sin so that you feel miserable all day. He shows you your sin through his word, through the law, so that you run to Jesus. And then Jesus is glorified as your faithful, merciful high priest. And then your heart has peace and rest and joy because of Jesus. Jesus doesn't shame us because of our lack of obedience. He doesn't shame us because there is a lack of obedience or because we fail. No, Jesus pities us. He's sympathetic. He's merciful. He's like a parent dealing with Sick children, and that's really what sin is. It's a sickness. It's not our identity. Our identity is that we're in union with Christ. We are God's adopted children, but we're God's children, and we have a sickness that remains in us until we die. We're God's kids, and we're sick, sick with sin. And so we're messy, or messy until the day We die. We crave sin the way that kids love candy. You know, kids just don't know when to stop eating candy, do they? Until they throw up. 
And that's kind of the indicator. The body's saying, that's too much. And that's how we are with sin often. We, we gorge on it until we throw up all over the place and make a mess of our lives. And Jesus comes to us in those moments to clean us up because we're sick. And this is where Puritan Thomas Goodwin is so helpful. Goodwin said it this way, Thy misery can never exceed his mercy. Thy misery can never exceed his mercy. Your misery, how you mess up your life because of sin, is no match for God's mercy. No matter how you mess up your life, you cannot exceed his mercy. No matter what mess you make of your life because of your sin, you cannot exceed God's mercy. That doesn't mean that there aren't consequences, right? There are consequences. Oh, yes, there are consequences to our sin. I'm not saying that at all. But there's mercy when we blow it. Goodwin also said this. So he, Jesus, also lays open his own disposition. In other words, he's saying, Jesus tells us what he's like. Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28. Come to me, you that are weary and heavy laden, for I am meek and lowly of heart. Goodwin continues, men are apt to have contrary conceits or thoughts of Christ. But he tells them his disposition there. He tells them the way he is. By preventing such hard thoughts of him, to allure them unto him the more. We are apt to think that he, being so holy, is therefore of a severe and sour disposition against sinners and not able to bear them. And clearly, Jesus tells us how he is here in Matthew 11. He's meek and lowly of heart, and he tells us this because we are so prone to have thoughts of him as being hard as nails, especially when we sin. And so Jesus tells us of his disposition. He tells us that he is merciful. Why? In order to allure us to him, not away from him. He tells us how he is to allure us to him because he knows that we want to keep our distance because of our sin, right? Isn't that what happens with you when you blow it? Do you want to run to Jesus in that moment? No, you want to hide, don't you? If I can have a little bit of time, maybe a few hours, then I can kind of sneak back in and be like, hey, Father, hope you forgot about that. Jesus tells us how he is to allure us to him. Because he knew that we would think that because he is so holy, he knew that, that we would think that he has a sour disposition against us. He knew that because he's so holy, that because we knew, we know he's so holy, and because we know what sinners we are, that we would think he must have a sour disposition against me. And that's why Jesus tells us that he is merciful and kind and gentle to sinners like us. Jesus woos us with his mercy. Understand this, Grace. Your mess does not keep Jesus away. Your sin and your mess does not keep Jesus away from you ever. In fact, your sins move Jesus to pity more than to anger. Think about that, Grace. For those of us who have repented of our sins and are trusting in Christ alone, this is true of us. Our sins actually move Jesus to pity more than to anger. Our sins move Jesus to compassion more than to anger. Think about that. That's incredible. 
Your sins move Jesus to mercy more than to anger. Let me ask you, is that how you view Jesus after you've binged on sin? I mean, after you've Netflix binged on sin. Yes, that's a new theological term. You heard it here first. After you have Netflix binged on sin, how do you view Jesus? Do you see him moving towards you in pity and mercy and compassion? Or do you picture him full of wrath and anger? Like someone yanks Jesus' arm behind his back, makes him cry uncle and say, be merciful to him, Jesus, and I'll let go of the arm lock. Like somebody yanks his arm behind his back and makes him be merciful to you, forces him to be gentle and kind with you. Is that how you view Jesus after you've wallowed in sin? If it is, then Thomas Goodwin has another word that you need to hear this morning. Your very sins move him to pity more than to anger. Christ, he takes part with you. And is so far from being provoked against you as all his anger is turned upon your sin to ruin it. Yea, his pity is increased the more towards you. Even as the heart of a father is to a child that hath some loathsome disease. Or as one is to a member of his own body that hath the leprosy. He hates not the member, for it is his flesh, but the disease And that provokes him to pity the part affected the more. What Goodwin is saying is that just like a parent is moved to compassion when their child is sick, that's how Jesus is toward us because he's our faithful and merciful high priest. Parents, what happens when our children get sick? What happens when they come down with the junk that's been going around the central coast? We don't hate our children when they get sick, do we? No, we pity them. We hate the sickness We hate the fever. We hate the stomach bug. We hate the vomit, right? We hate the cancer. But we don't hate our children. We pity them. We love them. Our heart breaks for them. Our heart moves out to them in compassion, even as we hate the sickness. Or as Goodwin says, if you get something wrong with your body, you don't hate that part of your body. If you get poison oak, which is prevalent on the central coast, you don't hate your arm and chop it off, do you? You may want to, because the itching's driving you crazy. You may want to chop it off to keep it from spreading, but you don't hate your actual arm. You hate The poison oak. And that's precisely how God is with us. He hates our sin. Yes, he hates our sin. He hates our sickness. But oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. How he pities us. How he comes in mercy to sinners like us. How his compassionate heart moves out to his children when they have binged on sin. Oh, how his merciful heart moves out to us when we wallow in our sin, when we wallow in our sickness. As Goodwin says, if your child becomes very sick, you do not kick the child out. You weep with him and tend to his needs. Christ responds to our sins with compassion despite his abhorrence of them. In other words, Jesus helps, like verse 18 says. 
He helps like a parent helps, and he cares for and is merciful and faithful to help their kids, sick kids, as a parent does. No parent tells a sick child, get better, quit being sick, crying out loud, get busy doing stuff, get up out of bed and clean your room, do things for me, break your own fever, just get better, will you? No parent ever says that to their child. Instead, a good, loving parent loses sleep when their kids are sick, which is what I did last week, and my wife did. A good, loving parent cuddles next to the sick child. A good, loving parent wakes up and checks their temperature in the middle of the night. A good, loving parent gives them medicine. A good, loving parent cleans up the vomit. A good, loving parent changes the sheets. All in the middle of the night. Why? Because we love our children and our hearts break for them when they are sick. We don't tell them, get better. Get up out of bed and do things for me to please me. And Jesus doesn't do that with us either. Our hearts break when our kids are sick and we help them. Our hearts are stirred and moved by compassion, and Jesus does that for us because we are sick with sin. We can't help ourselves. We can't make ourselves get better. All we can do is lie in bed and cry out to God, Father, Father, help. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is merciful and he's faithful. And never have two words been joined together so beautifully. He is our merciful and faithful high priest. And so right now, Christian, Jesus responds to your sins with compassion. He will not kick you out. Just as a parent would never kick their sick child out, so too Jesus does not kick us out. He responds to our sins with compassion despite his abhorrence and hatred of them. Yes, Jesus hates sin. Make no mistake about that. Jesus hates our sin. Oh, how he loves sinners who are sick with sin. And that means that Jesus is the real sweet dropper. Jesus is the honey-mouthed high priest. Jesus is the heavenly doctor. And I don't think that Puritan Richard Sibbs would mind giving up his nicknames to Jesus. In fact, Richard Sibbs would tell you that the reason people called him the sweet dropper and the reason people called him the honey-mouthed preacher and the reason people called him the heavenly doctor Sibbs is all because of Jesus. All because Jesus dropped sweet mercy down on him. All because Jesus was a honey-mouthed high priest to him. All because Jesus is the heavenly doctor that bandaged up Richard Sibb's own sin-sick soul. And if you're in union with Christ, he has done all of that for you. He comes to help, to comfort those in need, to lift us up on wings like eagles. And if you're in union with Christ, then he calls you to live on mission with him, to tell people how great he is, how merciful he is, how loving he is, how gracious he is, how kind he is to sinners. 
And God has sovereignly placed you on the central coast where 16% of the people that live here have never once set foot in a church. Go tell them about Jesus. Go tell them about the heavenly doctor. Go tell them about the honey-mouthed high priest. Go tell them about the sweet dropper. Go tell them that your sins move Jesus to pity more than to anger. And if you're struggling for the right words to get a conversation started, I found what Steve Brown said to be very helpful. He said this, let me ask you something. Do you know a single pagan who stayed away from Christ because a Christian did not act as holy and as sanctified as he or she ought to have acted? I know they will say that we're hypocrites, but usually that is just a smokescreen. The truth is, what repeatedly kills our witness is pretense, not freedom. It would be so refreshing to say to our unbelieving friends, I really mess up sometimes, but let me tell you something really good. God is still quite fond of me. Wouldn't it be great if you belonged to a God like that? If we were that honest, the world would beat a path to our door. And they'd probably beat a path to church. Why not leave today and say to one another, what a great Savior. What a great Savior Jesus is. And then go have a conversation with an unbeliever and tell them, you know what, I really mess up sometimes, but let me tell you something really good. God is still quite fond of me. Wouldn't it be great if you belonged to a God like that? And the good news of the gospel is that we do belong to a God like that, that in spite of the fact that we really do mess up, he's still quite fond of us because of Jesus. Let's pray to him, and then we'll sing about and to him. Oh, Father, it's almost like we don't even have words I don't understand why you're so merciful. I know it because of Jesus, but I'm flabbergasted and it boggles my mind that you'd be so compassionate and caring and gentle with sinners who turn away from you all the time. How glorious your son's life, death, and resurrection must be to you that you would treat us this way because we don't deserve it. Father, would you help us not to hoard this good news? Would you help us not to be like a kid with candy who won't give any to their siblings? Would you help us to be a giving people, a sharing people, a caring people, getting to know people as real human beings with real needs and real hurts? And then would you help us to point them to your son, the sweet dropper, the honey-mouthed high priest, the heavenly doctor. Would you do it for our joy, the joy of the central coast, and do it for your glory, we ask by the Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.